Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. I'm Jared Kimber and with me today is Barry Wilkinson, the cricket commentator from Line and Length in the Caribbean. But we're going to talk about West Indies cricket because they've had an incredible run in, in this game so far. For instance, before Douglas Jardine tried Bodyline, it was the West Indies who did it. And in the 1960s, their star all-rounder, Garfield Sobers, you may have heard of him, he bowled seam bowling with the new ball, then he would bowl finger spin, and then occasionally he would bowl wrist spin. In the 1970s, they gave up on spin and they went all in with pace, slowing down over rates and tenderizing the batsmen. In the 90s, they scored at more than three runs and over when no one else did. And when everyone was announcing the death of West Indies cricket, T20 came along and their players started facing more dot balls while hitting heaps of sixes. And even right now, Kemar Roach has taken to bowling around the wicket to left-hand batsmen like no other bowler in the history of the game before him. The West Indies are incredible innovators when it comes to cricket. Here it comes Dylan Ball to Gilt. He's killing it and swings it back with a square. That's gone out of the ground. That's gone for 6 4. Oh, don't catch that. It's white, it's round, and it's a ball. And 7 for 1. He's got another one. What a spell. Great fast bowler has Australia on the rocks here at the Wacker. There it is. The world record has fallen once again to Brian Charles Lara. Oh, but Trinidad and Tobago. Can you get that off the middle, but it's gone far enough and fast enough to bring up the double hundred. It's Greenwich's fourth double century. Almost a long hop to Vivertridge in this mood, and he just swatted it over square leg as if it was the easiest thing in the world. And that's it, 23rd test century for Vivian Richards. Holding now, really piling on the pace. Oh, and that's the first wicket. Big appeal there for LBW, must have been very close, he's given him. Dyson has a little look around at the stumps. Malcolm Marshall has struck there. There goes the sweep, there it is. 
Perhaps the most significant single ever in the history of Test Match Cricket. Brian Charles Lara becomes the first man in the history of the game to register a score of 400. So I suppose we should bring Barry Wilkinson in straight away, and I will probably call him Barry Wilkins at times because I grew up with the Barry Wilkins, and uh, you know Barry also feels like a friend of mine. So I can't help myself. But Barry, let's start with the thing that everyone thinks about with West Indies cricket. We're talking revolutionising West Indies fast bowlers. It's it was in the blood for a while there, so much so that it just felt like almost everyone in the West Indies was bowling 90 miles an hour and bouncing someone, didn't it? Yes, certainly did. And I think that's been the legacy of West Indies cricket, uh, their four-pronged pace attack, how they've been able to uh, bowl quite quickly at the English and the, the Aussies. And that has uh, been how they have grown up. That's how West Indies uh, fans have grown up seeing uh, their, you know, their, their, their idols bowl fast. And uh, it's been great. I mean, one of the most interesting things about it, when you look at it from a historic standpoint, is that a lot of it came out of Clive Lloyd watching Jeff Thompson and Dennis Ali uh, bounce in West Indies in 1975. But it also came out of the fact that West Indies actually did have a lot of great spinners, uh, you know, Lance Gibbs and Sonny Ramadan and, you know, some really, really talented spinners coming through. And then they got to a period in the late 70s where they got smashed by India and their spinners weren't up to it. And Clive Lloyd sort of, he didn't go all in with the four quick bowlers straight away. They did, they did pick four quicks at times. But it, it, it was a gradual sort of move towards it before he suddenly realised that that was the way forward. You know, it's funny you say that because exactly a year ago, I think the West Indies played against Afghanistan in the World Cup. And he was on radio uh, making the point that he revolutionised cricket in the West Indies because he didn't feel spin was the way to go in taking his team forward. He felt that if they had to be special, they would have been special with pace. And that's why he developed that mentality of that four-pronged pace attack. So, yeah, you're right. He thought that, look, if we use spin as our weapon, they're going to make the pitches not suitable for us around the world. It doesn't make any sense because we don't play on, on, on pitches in the Caribbean that really suit spin. And that's why he developed that pace to market West Indies cricket. He was the innovator of it. And I think that that has been something that they've tried to, to keep on uh, since the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and now uh, we're into 2020. Uh, perhaps we don't have the, the good ones like we did uh, back in the day, but I think we still have some, some pretty good fast bowlers and we're developing many more. But the, the, the main thing is that the foundation has been laid by him and um, he has definitely been the one who has put that in the mindset of West Indies fans and players. And since this is an English cricket show, it's worth talking about how the West Indies revolutionised county cricket in the UK. But it actually, it starts before that, doesn't it, Barry? So Leary Constantine, when he comes over to play in the West Indies' first test series in England, he essentially says to everyone who asks, I'm here to get a job. I, I want to play uh, club cricket. So I'm here to play in this test match so I can get a job playing in, in the league cricket. He gets a job. Garfield Sobers ends up getting a job. Uh, you know, the three W's, uh, some of them end up playing in, in, in club cricket. And then from there they all sort of gravitate towards county cricket and that's a big change in county cricket as well yeah and you know joe garner then continues that, that legacy calling calling croft uh, ian bishop played for derbyshire uh, malcolm marshall played for hampshire it, it just seemed to be a, a ripple effect they started it and then a, a list of west indies players just continued it um and i suppose when they played, they also helped the counties as well, and the, the English players who would have been uh, batsmen, they helped them kind of adapt to some of the fast bowling that they, they would have experienced when they played for England and when the West Indies, again, of course, played at the senior level. 
I, I love the idea of talking to old county batsmen and saying, wasn't it great that you got to adapt to fast bowling by facing Joel Garner on, on, a, on a wet wicket in Essex? <laughs> I'm sure that they did it. But look, Jeffrey Boycott, for example, he often said, Michael Holden Bull, perhaps one of the best overs to me ever in world cricket. But he got a taste of what it would have been like uh, prior. And perhaps the wickets in the Caribbean were nothing like what he would have uh, experienced uh, playing uh, in, in Yorkshire. But nevertheless, you're right. They got the, the, the whole aptitude and they got the whole feel of what it's like to face a fast bowling from the early days of playing county cricket with those same guys. The pitches were different, much, much different, but they at least were able to see the height and some, sometimes judge the bounce and the, the swing. One of the really interesting things for me is the sort of the way that cricket has developed in the West Indies because essentially your cricketers have had to be freelance. There has, there has never been enough uh, financial um, uh, you know, means of the West Indies cricket board to pay the players what they're worth. So they've had to go out and play. So we talked about, you know, Leary Constantine already, you know, having to go and play club cricket in England and, and that happened with Sobers. But then you had the, the Rebel Tours, you had Kerry Packer, um, and now you have Colpack and T20. It's always been this thing in West Indies cricket, and it's perhaps why you've had to innovate because you, no one really has a strong contract at home. So everyone's a freelancer and everyone's trying to get attention. So it does actually make sense, doesn't it, that the West Indies cricket ha have played in a different way to continue to get jobs overseas. Yeah, the T20 leagues, uh, if you ask me, have kind of ruined the plans of what we could have been in terms of a test team. Um, when the IPL started in 2008, that was the start of seeing a breakaway in the habits of West Indies cricketers. Um, I think the West Indies were just beginning to develop that kind of really good test team again. But then in came after IPL was then the big bash. And then you've also got now the, the CPL. Now that effectively there's a window for that. Uh, there was also the Bangladesh. There is also the Bangladesh Premier League. All of these tournaments have quote unquote distracted uh, the West Indies players from giving their all to playing cricket in the West Indies for the West Indies. And you're right. It, it's been a distraction from ball one because of the, the fact that there's just not enough money to keep the players concentrating on playing at home. And it's unfortunate because a team like, let's say, India, they don't allow any of their players, even retired players, to play in any league outside of the IPL. But we can't move to that stage because we just don't have the, the marketing power. We don't have the, uh, the money to do that, to contract to Andrew Russell, to contract to Chris Gale, to contract to Sunil Narine, um, to contract to Kyron Pollard, uh, even now Nicholas Puran, you're beginning to see a bit of breakaway where he is concerned. There's just not enough money, there's not enough marketing power in the Caribbean to do that to all players. And once again, there's another distraction. I'm wondering what it's going to be like in another, another decade or so, if another T10 league perhaps might emerge where it's even going to be a further distraction. But from the early days of, uh, you know, the 70s and the 80s, there's been some kind of distraction to kind of pull West Indies players, the top ones, away from playing for the West Indies. And that has continued down to this day. Mm. Well, even, even Garfield Sobers, he had to be convinced by uh, Donald Bradman and Richie Benno to play for the West Indies over playing for his league team um, up north in England. So those distractions have always been there. There's just more of them and there's more money. I often wonder, um, Barry, that George Headley was you know, one of the great batsmen we've ever had in cricket, but he almost became a, he almost went to America to become a dentist. And I wonder if he might not have made more money if he'd gone to America and become a dentist than he actually did going on to be a cricketer. Whereas now cricketers don't have to make those decisions, do 
do that. There are so many options for a young West Indian cricketer. But as you said, sadly, not always with the international team. Yeah, I mean, George Headley, I mean, they call him Atlas because he, he scored runs everywhere he went. He could have gone on to the States and become a, a, become a dentist, but he would not have left the legacy that like, he, he did being a cricketer. So, you know, legacy sometimes is what a lot of the cricketers should think about. Your legacy is much more and much bigger uh, than your actual current day-to-day job. Um, so Gary Sobers did not make any money playing cricket. For the West mm. Indies. I mean, let's face it, he got paid what I think he said a hundred pounds and in some instances to go on even a whole tour for six, seven weeks. And now look at the legacy that he's left. Look at how he's now become a national hero in Barbados. Um, he is uh, revered all over the world. He is a, a known figure. He is just a, a hell of a gentleman. In fact, I interviewed him yesterday because of the passing of Sir Everton Weeks. So Cricket made people like George Headley who they are. That's the name. We know the name George Headley because of, of the name of cricket, not because of, of him being a dentist. And I think if he went on to, to the States, I think he was going to New York, I think it was. If he had gone on to the States to be, to be a dentist, then who knows? We might not have even heard of the name George Headley. It would not have been written in the annals of West Indies cricket. Uh, to be fair, a couple of West Indian bowlers have probably uh, taken some teeth out in their time. So uh, it's only fair if a batsman gets a go as well. Uh, let's hear from a current member of the West Indies side now. Vice Captain Craig Brathwaite has been speaking to TalkSport 2 about his upbringing and his first memories of the game in the Caribbean. He's hailed batsman Brian Lara as an inspiration for him and he's been looking ahead to the three-match test series. You know, watching cricket when I was probably about nine years old, you know, I just wanted to see it. At that time, I think like Curly Armrose and Coney Walsh were playing. You know, and you know, just to see their them bowl was, was fantastic. Um, but for me, you know, watching Bernalar, you know, bat was just amazing. You know, just walking in, watch out, no walk out, sorry, you know, to bat. And you know, seeing him play different shots, it was that was truly amazing, you know, as a little man. You know, that's all I wanted to go to Kensington to watch is, you know, Brian Arbani. Brathwaite had a great run for a little while, but like a lot of West Indian batsmen, since the Duke ball and the pitches have been spiced up in the West Indies, they've been struggling a little bit. He's not in the the kind of form that he was perhaps the last time he was in England. Yeah, it's interesting to hear him say that, um, you know, he he tried to model his career after Brian Arbani because he's nothing like Larry. He's not anything like him at all. Yeah, I mean, Craig's Craig's, uh, strike rate is, is pretty low. Uh, he's a pretty slow batsman. He's more dogged. Um, and I didn't think he modeled a lot from Lara. He didn't, perhaps he didn't take a lot from Lara. Not that he's not a good batsman or not a good cricketer. But I think he's more in the line of a Desmond Haynes, perhaps, who has been more of his mentor. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty interesting to hear him, hear him say <laughs> that uh, Lara was the person who he tried to model his career after. But I guess most batsmen of his era, would have modeled, tried to model Lara because they grew up seeing his dominance and he was just a, a, a great figure like he still is today. Going, going, Plunkett will go into the left-handed Chris Gale who hits another bomb! He's Wokes again. Down comes Gale! What a stroke that is! Wow, wow, wow. Here comes William Borsagale who's killing and swings it back with a square! That's gone out of the ground! That's It's white, it's rounded, it's a ball. Here goes Plunkett again. Into the air, and Gale's got underneath this one. This is hitting the roof of the stand. Miss Miles over it. Here comes Wood again, and goes to Gale, who is again smacking it. Just forward with that one. That's gone for six more. Chris Gale 
eyes on fire, making the mirror, giving the keys to the dance semi ground. Those were just a few highlights from our tour of the West Indies in 2019, and just a few of the players who've made an impact on English soil. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with myself, Jared Kimber, and Caribbean cricket commentator Barry Wilkinson. We've briefly spoken about the impact of the Caribbean has had on the game itself, but let's turn our attention towards their influence on English cricket specifically. I'm delighted that Caribbean cricket podcast Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt is joining myself and Barry for the next few minutes to chat. Michelle, let's start with, I think, maybe one of the most important things of our time. A, a group of fairly you know, young black players have come over to play at a time where it's quite important for England with the Black Lives Matters movement. How do you see that all playing out throughout this series? Um, good question. I mean, the obviously the West Indies team, backroom staff have had a lengthy conversation about what they wanted to do. Um, with regards to that, they've got the Black Lives Matter insignia on their lapels, I believe, and uh, the England players, I think, have got it on theirs as well. Um, it's uh, it's hard because they've got to. It's they're kind of stuck because both sides have to show that they are doing something. But then at the same time, with sport, I guess is demonstrating your support for Black Lives Matter enough. Or should we expect more from them? Or is the fact that they'll they've that they've got it on their lapels does that mean that we don't need to ask any more from sportsmen? Personally, I think that is enough. I I actually said on the podcast that what I thought they could or should have done is maybe read out something both captains before the start of play, and I actually think that would probably be more powerful because the whole world will be watching this test series. Yeah, no, it's a it's a very interesting one actually to see how they go about it. I mean, as someone who you know has you know West Indian heritage, but um, you know has grown up in the UK, how have you seen the sort of the West Indies um, effect on English cricket over the years? The West Indies effectively are are everybody's second team. I don't think you'll find any cricket fan around the world who doesn't hold some who doesn't hold West Indies cricket uh, in some form of affection. In terms of how it correlates to, in my experience, um, being a black male of uh, Caribbean origin growing up, in, growing up in the UK, actually, I'd actually I would actually argue that my, my kind of, as I've grown up, the West Indies' uh, um, ability to win on the field has declined <laughs> noticeably. So, um, no, that's actually, not your fault, mate, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I do wonder when I look back on the last 20 years, if the kind of cultural uh, impact of West Indies cricket on um, the lives of Carib- um, Caribbean diaspora in the UK has actually maybe it doesn't no longer it doesn't have the impact it once had in the 80s. But that's because with any sports team, um, the worse you become, the greater of the, the lack of the greater the lack of interest. If that makes sense. It's quite interesting too, just on a playing perspective. So Franklin Stevenson, you know, plays county cricket, has to bowl a million overs, as many imports have um, over the years. And because of that, he starts bowling off spin. And that basically ends up with him bowling the off-cutter slow ball. And and we see to, to this day a lot of things that West Indian cricketers do. For instance, the West Indians sort of started that six-hitting revolution um, when it came to T20 crickets. But now you see guys like Phil Salt and Lewis Gregory, Gregory who play in a very similar way to the West Indian guys. There still seems to be that, you know, West Indians seem to pioneer things and then, you know, the English cricket culture sort of, you know, adapts and, and takes what they want from that. Yeah, most definitely. And I think, 
actually, if, if there's anything, I think you've kind of hit on it, if there's anything that the that the West Indies cricket team can kind of be, can kind of earmark as their own, it's T20. Um, no, well, maybe more teams copy them today, but for a brief period, certainly in the last 10 years, there was no team that had the capacity in international cricket um, to play T20 in the brand uh, or the brand of T20 cricket that the West Indies play. So the idea that the West Indies still doesn't have major influence um, on how cricket is consumed, I think, well, that, that's a fallacy, and we can see that through 2020 cricket and test cricket, however. Um, I think we're an afterthought. Michelle, this whole thing about a biosecure series and in terms mm. of the West Indies players actually preparing for it, did you see that level of seriousness from them in these practice matches that perhaps they might have had if they were playing against a county side? It's a difficult one, Barry, because, okay, first things first, the fact that they played in um, training gear. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, put it this way, I stopped paying attention. Because they were yeah. because they were playing in training gear, I wasn't convinced that it was as serious a warm-up as it could have been. Does it matter what you play in to to increase the level of intensity? There's an argument to say yes, it should do because it re- the, the it should reflect what you're going to be. It should just, it should be as close to a reflection of what the real test is going to be like as it could be. Does that mean that playing a county team would have made them better prepared? I'm not so convinced. Um, but looking at the the outcome of those two warm up games, particularly the second one, which was originally supposed to be um more of an intense warm up than the than the than the first one. In the end they both looked like they were they were both lacking intensity in my mind. But um does that mean that they are ill prepared for the test? I'm not convinced they could have been better prepared even if they played county teams, if I'm honest. I will say this. My father always says if you can't be a cricketer, at least look like one. Um and uh I don't I think they failed on that particular one in their warm up games. But uh you know, they do have an incredible bowling attack. I mean, we know that the batting is going to struggle. It struggled at home um, against weaker bowling attacks than they, they might f- uh, face in this series as well. So we know the, ba- the batting is going to sh- uh, struggle. But there is an incredible bowling attack here, isn't there? Yeah, the bowling attack, I think, is, is, pretty, is pretty good. I think that the player to watch out for where the bowler is concerned is Azari Joseph. All eyes are on Kimar Roach. He's seven away from 200, uh, run, 200 wickets in uh, test cricket. Um, Sharon Gabriel, I still think, I still believe is a little bit undercooked. He's a bit underprepared. And uh, this is history in the making. I've never seen a 25-member squad go to uh, a territory to play and someone has to prove uh, their fitness within the 25-member squad to make it into a, a Test 11. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and Stalin Gabriel, he had to do that. And I, st- I still don't think he's ready. But we have to see. I mean, he might surprise everyone. I think the two players to look up for are Kimar Roach, of course, and indeed Alzari Joseph. Alzari Joseph is going to be the surprise package in this Test team where bowling is concerned. I would concur. Um, personally, I would like to see Raheem Cornwall play in every single test match. That's my personal opinion. Uh, I think Raheem Cornwall um, is, whether he's, well, he proved against Afghanistan that he can win a test match for the West Indies, albeit in different conditions. The problem is, and uh, don't know how Barry feels about this, but the West Indies haven't, haven't, well, they've got lots of issues, but they have an issue. They have an issue with the makeup of their lineup. In an aggressive um, international test side, Shane Dowrich and Jason Holder would both bat one position higher. 
if they were if we were replicating that in another test side, and that would make way for a Keen Cornwall to definitely play um, in the West Indies Test team. The reality is because Jason bats eight, even though Jason is a batting all rounder, not as many would say. Well, you two made the screen say he's a bowling all rounder. I think he's a batting all rounder. When Jason bats eight, it immediately limits the amount of bowling options that you've got, which kind of means, as Barry says, Alzari Joseph he has to play. His form dictates it. He's the most talented young bowler in the in the region. But then where does that leave someone like Rakeem Cornwall? And then all of a sudden, you have to put pressure on Ruston Chase to bowl more overs than he should do when he's not a frontline spinner. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And uh, looking at that, I was thinking, well, look, perhaps they might have to play a batsman short. Perhaps Shamar Brooks might not get a play. He's not been in any uh, great form. And you might have to let him sit down. Um, because I, like you, believe that you should always have a, a, a first-choice spinner in your side. And Raheem Cornwall is that first-choice spinner. There's no doubt about it. Roston Chase, yes, he got eight wickets against England last year at Kensington Oval. But how often is that going to happen? And I'm not really convinced that uh, Roston is more, yeah, a, a backup bowler. He's not the person you're going to turn to to give you 15 overs on the trot. Uh, so the makeup of the team is going to be pretty interesting. I'm not quite sure how the pitch will look in uh, Southampton, uh, but I would really like to see Raheem Cornwall in my final 11 with those three pacers in Gabriel, Roach, uh, and, of course, uh, Joseph with the fourth man to bowl is the captain. Uh, Michelle, j- just um, just before you leave, uh, on the batsmen, you've been talking about this a lot on, on the podcast and, and you guys have been doing it on Twitter as well, that people remember, and, and this happens with most cricket fans because they only remember the cricket that's kind of happens in front of them. People remember the, the West Indian batsman from the last time in Headingley, that incredible chase. Uh, it's not quite been like that for the West Indian batsman since, has it? No, and um, I was saying last night, or was, I can't remember what to say, that one of the, the biggest issue we have in the Caribbean with our batsmen, I know I always sound so critical, <laughs> but um, they're not even pulling up that, they're not pulling up trees in domestic cricket. And the reality is this, this kind of batch of players, the, the, the large majority of them have been persisted with since 2015, kind of coinciding with, with when Jason was made captain. That does not mean they aren't talented. Craig Brathwaite is a talented batsman. Shai Holt is a talented batsman. But what it has meant for a lot of them is they have had to learn how to play test cricket on the job. They haven't got um, stats upon stats in domestic cricket to say, you know what, these are going to be world-class batsmen. And the reality is in the West Indies that when a batsman shows any inkling of form, we have to chuck them in. But that is possibly before they're ready. Hence, they then have to learn. Now, the only thing I would say is Craig, Shyholt, Roston, even Jermaine Blackwood, who will return into the side, that that excuse of their learning on the job, I could say that for maybe the first three years between 2015, 2017. I shouldn't still be saying that in 2020. And now the reality is I look at them and I'm saying, now you need to start producing consistently. We can't keep saying that your young batsmen who are learning on the job produce. Otherwise, we're going to have to send some more young batsmen in to learn on the job. Michelle, thank you very much. You can find him on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Still to come on the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2, we pay tribute to the late great Sir Everton Weeks and we assess the impact of the famous three Ws have had on cricket in the Caribbean. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with the Institute of Cricket. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to Visit barbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. But the least remarkable thing about these three W's, Warrell, Walcott and Weeks, is that all three of them come from the same little island of Barbados, which is only about the size of the Isle of Wight. All were born within 18 months of one another. Laker hit for four by Warrell, and there is his there is his Clyde Walcott, the massive vice captain who never made 90 at Birmingham but strained a muscle there. Four runs, weeks 37, facing Walk. Before runs, pass cover point. Oh, tremendous hit! Four runs. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with myself, Jared Kimber, and Caribbean cricket commentator and presenter, Barry Wilkinson. As you heard there, the three Ws, Sir Everton Weeks, Sir Clive Walcott, and Sir Frank Worrell represented one of the game's most formidable batting units for more than a decade for the West Indies. And last week, the Islands mourned as one of its favourite sons when Sir Everton Weeks passed away at 95. Firstly, Barry, what an incredible cricketer Sir Everton Weeks was. An incredible cricketer and even a better individual. I mean, he was such a gentleman up until his last days. Uh, he was very ill in October last year, and uh, he bounced back from it. And many people saw him watching cricket. He was uh, watching cricket at Kensington Oval in the first-class uh, competition earlier this year. Uh, he, his health was obviously deteriorating, but not his mind. 
uh, not his his ability to have that that sort of frugal spirit. So yes, we have lost a great cricketer, but we never saw him play live, did we? Because we all we all knew him as just a great gentleman. I think that's how I will remember um, Sir Everton Weeks, a really great gentleman, a very nice gentleman, one who's extremely helpful, uh, very humorous, and he was a pretty good commentator as well. He commentated um, cricket for the Caribbean Broadcasting Corporation as an analyst for about uh, three decades or more until he retired in I think 2000. So we've lost a good man. 48 test matches, a uh, high score of 207, batting average of 58.61, which sounds made up, it's so high. Uh, he holds the world record to this day for the most consecutive hundreds, five, and I think he made a 90 in the other innings. I mean, he was a next-generational talent. Uh, it just happens to be that, you know, in some ways, he, he sort of packaged in with the, the other two players. You know, Walcott might have even been a better batsman, but spent a lot of his time wicket-keeping. And Frank Warrell was an all-rounder, but also went on to, you know, change the game politically. You know, but we shouldn't forget just what an incredible batsman Weeks was, even if we didn't see him. He retired quite early as well, didn't he, Barry? He retired at 32 because he was upset with the way that um, West Indies cricket was being run. And if I'm not mistaken, at about 40 or 41, he played a tour game against Australia and still made 100. So we know that he probably left a few runs left on the table as well. Yeah, I mean, his career was definitely ended prematurely um, because of politics. And, and you know, what's funny is that that same kind of politics still exists today. So we, we kind of be, we kind of tend to be very critical of the politics in West Indies cricket now, but that has never ever stopped. Uh, I mean, the thing about Sir Everton Weeks as a batsman, uh, he was very influential in helping. And, and if you read the autobiographies of these gentlemen, he was influential in helping Frank World. He was influential in helping uh, Sir Clyde Walker in terms of their batting ability. They averaged something like almost 50 against Australia as a batting unit. And that's collectively how they got that, that very strong name, the three W's, because of the, the prowess that they had against the opposition. So I'm really sad that perhaps his, his legacy wasn't marked by the fact that uh, he was more of an influencer, uh, influencer over someone like, let's say, of, of Sir Frank Wuerl, who many believe was, was much more charismatic. But, you know, he was such a good batsman to end his career at 32. Was just not, it just didn't do justice to how good a cricket he was. From a cricketing perspective, one of the really interesting things is if you go back and you, you look at early cricket, almost all the stars of batting were top order players, you know, generally openers, uh, first drop, you might get someone at number four. But what's interesting from a cricket perspective is this is one of the first really, truly, you know, top quality test playing nations where the, the strength really was that middle order. And the fact that they all, you know, came up together. I mean, there's that story from Walcott that, that they all sh shared the same midwife and they grew up um, very, very close um, ge geographically um, to each other. So not just in Barbados, but within the same region of Barbados. So it, it, incredible that they all ended up in the middle order as well. Yeah, you're right. But back in those days, they just couldn't. The opening batsmen were like so many, and they were so good. And you know that story about them sharing the same midwife was simply because, uh, from from my ex, from my uh, knowledge of what happened in back in in that day, there were not a, a lot of options per se. And uh, if you were from a particular p place in Barbados, chances are. Uh, the same the same midwife was going to deliver you. They were not there were no big gynecologists in 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 the nineteen twenties nineteen thirties. So yeah, they they did share the same midwife. They they do come from perhaps a, a very similar region in Barbados, and they were very very close. They were great friends. Um, I think that they were able to encourage each other, and they were able to inspire the other members of the West Indies team 
it's just a great legacy and one that has ended because he was the last of the living three W's. So Clyde, I think, died in 2000 or 1999, somewhere around there. But it's just the end of a legacy. He was the last living one. And I think we held on to that much more than we did anything else. And I mean, talking about Barbados, you are an expert in Barbados. If I remember correctly, you told us that we need about an hour and a half to get to the ground uh, when we were in Bridgetown uh, one day for the for the test match. It took us about 10 minutes to get there. But you, you are a Bayesian boy. Can you take us through? I mean, it's incredible the amount of I don't want you to name all the greats that are coming from Barbados. But, you know, when people try and explain it, why is it? I mean, you know, Mumbai and and New South Wales have both produced a lot of greats as well, but they're much bigger regions than Barbados. Why does Barbados have so many great cricketers? Well, well first of all, Jared, please, please don't let my legacy be misleading the commentary team to get in there at seven o'clock <laughs> in the morning. Uh, the traffic was just very kind to you that day. But no, seriously. <laughs> I think the main reason for that is, is that we've had a very strong structure of club cricket. Uh, the club cricket in Barbados has been brilliant from the, the early days of even the early 1900s. Uh, Empire Cricket Club, Spartan Cricket Club, uh, the Young Men Christian Association, is a ground that's now defunct called the YMCA. Cricketers came through these clubs um, a dime a dozen. So therefore, there was just a big influx of everyone playing cricket. Football was played, sure. There was a bit of hockey being played, a bit of basketball. But cricket was so dominant in Barbados that every youngster played the game. And every youngster was attached to perhaps some kind of club. If you come to Barbados, Jared, and you've been here several times, you drive around the island, you can't drive a kilometre without seeing a cricket ground. Mm. Cricket grounds are just a dime a dozen. They're just everywhere in Barbados. And I think that that is the history of Barbados, lots of cricket grounds, lots of cricketers, and that's why they've been able to produce perhaps uh, more than the average cricketer, let's say, like in Jamaica or Trinidad and Tobago, who've had uh, more distractions uh, than you might have had in Barbados growing up in those in that period when they just play cricket. Walcott was, uh, I think he averaged something like 40 with the bat as a wicketkeeper uh, for about 15 or 20 tests. He then gives up the gloves and goes on to average about 60 with the bat for his next 30 or so um, test, which just shows what an incredible player he was. But Sir Frank Worrell would be the first black permanent captain of the West Indies. Obviously, George Headley had filled in, but for some reason, despite the fact George Headley was about a smartest batsman who had ever lived, uh, they, he wasn't given the captaincy. It, it kept going back to the white players. But Frank Worrell becoming the first permanent black captain is a huge moment in West Indies cricket, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. Um, if you want to talk about Clyde Walker just a, a little bit, um, you know, he, I think he would have played his, his first class match, his first first class match, I think he was 15 or 16 years old. Uh, so he played very young. He scored, I think, the first triple century as a schoolboy. And that's when everyone was watching this young man called Clyde Walker to score, I think, 320 or 315, something like that, um, to score that those kind of runs. And he did it with Sir Frank World, who was his schoolboy friend. Uh, he made, I think, 250-odd. That is what perhaps set the world to thinking, well, look, these two men could be someone or could be a peer that could take West Indies cricket forward. And they became what a, a bit of a brand, Sir Frank World and Clyde Walker. They were good friends from school, and they became a bit of a brand in Barbados's cricket. And that's why they, they've always said, once Barbados's cricket is strong, West Indies cricket is likely to be strong because the pillar of the strength of West Indies cricket has come off of the Bajans. And Sir Frank and Clyde Walcott played together, had that big stand. 
dominated cricket for Barbados. And then they went on to play for the West Indies where that dominance continued. And then uh, you, you, were, you were added to that uh, Everton Weeks, who happened to be another Bajan, who happened to be a, a, a W, to market that brand of the three Ws. So I think it's been, it's been really good how Sir Clyde and Sir Frank came into cricket together and they played so much together for Barbados and they played so much together for their respective clubs and were able to be so dominant in the end. Yeah, you know, real shame that, you know, Barbados uh, hugged all the spots and all the other islands couldn't have a go. But uh, uh, certainly, you know, it, it shows what it was a completely different time. And the fact that um, um, Weeks would go on to play so much club cricket in the UK, again, is something that we went back to at the start, isn't it? You know, to, to get their worth, um, they had to go away. And as you said, the politics sort of never went away from them. I mean, the fact that Frank Worrell had to basically prove himself for so long before he became the captain sort of shows w- what an era that was. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, um, Weeks in terms of his only 48 test matches, I think he eventually said about a decade or more ago, he actually said he wished he had played at least 60 because that would have taken him down to, what, 30, 36 years old? They only played about four tests a year uh, yeah. back in, in the day. So I think he, he, he was very disappointed that he threw it in. But perhaps if he had retired at 32 in this era, he could have gone back to play. But retired at 32 in that era, you had a line of batsmen, a line of cricketers that were just waiting to get into the team. So going back was almost going to be impossible. And he said that was what really put him to the fact that, look, I could not go back and play. I just could not get back into the team. When I retired, I realized that that was it for me because of the, the long line of cricketers that were actually waiting for my play. And that's when he said he really treasured West Indies cricket. He began to see that it was just more than just a bat and ball. It was the pride then of playing for one's country that he missed most. He didn't miss the hundreds. He still has the record for five consecutive test centuries. He didn't miss any of that after his retirement. He said he missed the fact that he did not uh, have the pride and representation to wake up and play for his country anymore. And that speaks volumes to the kind of individual that, uh, that died July 1st. And just on their sort of overall legacy, I mean, you look at the way that they played the game. They weren't they weren't a great team, although they, they certainly you know won a lot of tests. But I, I think Australia and England probably had slightly better teams in, in that kind of era. Although they played some brilliant test series, like the sixty sixty one series against Australia. But but what is quite interesting is because the West Indies were so good after them. That you know, there's very. You look at the film like Fire in Babylon. There's so little about these guys, and and not just them, Leary Constantine, and all the way back, and and George Headley. West Indies had a lot of great cricketers. That because the next era was so incredible and and such a brilliant dynasty, that some of those guys sort of a little bit overlooked now. That when we look at the greats of West Indies cricket. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean. When you look at the greats now of West Indies cricket, I would say perhaps, do you, do you reckon Chris Gill will, will get into the greats or will he just get into the very good? Because the last great that West Indies cricket would have produced would perhaps be the Brian Lara. So I think we still are looking for that generation now, taking us into 2030, 2040. Who is going to be that next great of West Indies cricket? The three Ws was a, was a great legacy. So Gary Sobers was even, was even better on his own. He was like a one-man show. Um, Brian Lara, Saviv Richards, 
uh, currently Admiral's Malcolm Marshall. But we are now searching for that next great of West Indies cricket. And it's a bit sad. And I don't know where who is going to be the person. But I'm trying to find where that person is going to come from because I'm not seeing that at the moment. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with myself, Jared Kimber, and the Caribbean cricket commentator, Barry Wilkinson. It's time now to educate you with our top five West Indian cricketers you've never heard of but ought to have done. Barry, can you start us off, please? Yeah, look, Anderson Cummins is a name that will be etched in West Indies cricket for all but playing four test matches or so. Anderson Cummings was one of the best uh, regional fast bowlers um, back in the, the late 90s. Uh, early 90s correction, and he did not make his test debut as many predicted against South Africa here in the Caribbean, and there was a massive boycott because of Anderson Cummings not playing. Kenny Benjamin actually got his play in 1992 when the West Indies played South Africa here for the first time. And he went on and only played four test matches, and he, he wasn't that good when he played the test games. And I think people said, well, we, we boycotted a test match for Anderson Cummings, and he let us down when he actually played. So he, his name is a name that's in the, actually the history of West Indies cricket because he was one of the first men that uh, a boycott was led for, but he never went on, even when he got the opportunity. So that's one name that we might not know of. Anderson Cummins, yeah, certainly I remember him. He was a very talented bowler. Incredible that he didn't quite make it. I, I've gone back a little bit further here, Barry. I've gone to Lance Gibbs uh, because Lance Gibbs once had the most wickets in the world. He was the world record holder, uh, but largely for, for a few different reasons, he's not really remembered that much. And I think pro- probably because he was an off spinner and uh, West Indies cricket became, you know, well, pace dependent. And everyone started talking about, you know, quicks and bounces and all this sort of stuff. But Lance Gibbs was a beautiful off spinner um, who, who played in that same sort of era that we're talking about before the sort of uh, 60s and 70s. And few people remember him now, but he was incredibly accurate and he had these long fingers and everyone always used to talk about his long fingers he wasn't the most exciting to watch and the reason he wasn't so exciting to watch is he was basically impossible to score off i think team scored at 1.9 runs and over or something against him and he bowled these very very long spells but he was and undoubtedly a great of the game and sadly he's just been forgotten because west indies cricket was so good after he left i think one of the main reasons for that though jared is because he was one who migrated quite early to the United States. So, mm. uh, of course, you know, back in the day, there was no Facebook, there was no uh, Twitter, there was no Instagram, there was no way of really keeping in contact. So when he migrated right after he stopped playing for West Indies, he became forgotten, and that's quite sad. He still comes around uh, now and then, but you're so correct, Lance it was, is indeed forgotten, and that's unfortunate. Uh, my, my third one is Ian Allen. Uh, Ian Allen came around when the West Indies had a really good four-pronged pace attack. They came to England in 1991, and um, Malcolm Marshall uh, was in his prime. I mean, he was bowling really well. He was bowling deadly. But Sir Viv Richards, who obviously comes from the same uh, island as Ian Allen, the same territory that he was islands, he was convinced, look, this little man, Ian Allen, is someone who we have to give a chance to. He made his debut at Lords. You make your debut at Lords in 1991 as a fast bowler, you had to be good. But he was a massive, massive, massive flop. He only played about two test matches, Ian Allen, after so being highly touted. And he was definitely one who everyone forgot about. But back in the 90s, he was on the lips of everyone because people said he's going to be the man to take over West Indies cricket in the, in the mid-late 90s. He only played a couple of test matches. 
Well, I'm going to go back to another fast bowler, but take it way, way back to basically, I, I think, well, if, if it isn't Larry Constantine, then it's the other guy, which is Manny Martindale, who's an incredible quick <laughs> bowler. Uh, he opened the bowling with Constantine, and that's part of the reason he doesn't get remembered as much. But he co-pioneered leg theory, so body line. And in 10 tests, he took 39 wickets at 21. He was terrifyingly quick, but also very skillful. And, and he, was quite, he was a bit shorter as well, so he skidded the ball up. I think, you know, I mean, we don't have a lot of footage of him, but there's almost a little bit of Malcolm Marshall in the way that he bowled. But because he only played up, you know, the 10 tests, he doesn't get remembered as much and he didn't go on to be a uh, well, a lord and a peer and everything that, that Constantine did. Um, but he, he ended up, his career actually playing club cricket up north in England, which must have been terrifying because at least the guys who played club cricket against um, West Indian bowlers in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, at least they knew about West Indian fast bowlers. Imagine not knowing anything about them and suddenly having Manny Martindale come in and bounce you in a club game. It's completely terrifying. And who's your, who's your last one there, Barry? Yeah, just one quick word on, on him. He, his legacy in Barbados became that his granddaughter, Leah Martindale, was a top swimmer Olympian. So that says a lot. <laughs> Uh, my last one is Lincoln Roberts. Lincoln Roberts is the most unfortunate cricketer that we've ever heard about play for the West Indies because he scored for three seasons. He scored the most runs. He was one of the leading uh, first-class cricketers. He got into the team, made his test debut. He got out for a duck, didn't bat in the second innings because it's when Brian Lara uh, single-handedly beat Australia in 1999. In at Sabina Park when he scored that double century, that magnificent double century. Lincoln Roberts didn't bat in the second innings and he never, ever played again for the West Indies. So after being the leading run scorer to get into the West Indies team, get there, get a duck in this first test, and then didn't play, uh, didn't bat in the second, and he never played a test match after that. What a disappointment. Everyone forgot the name Lincoln Roberts after he was indeed on the lips of everyone for about three seasons in first-class cricket. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we've picked a lot of really interesting cricketers there and, you know, players who could have made it and some who didn't and have been forgotten. But one of the interesting things is just we could have just done random bowlers who have gone around the world. So, for instance, Roddy Eswick is the bowling coach of the West Indies. If I'm not mistaken, I think his bowling average in first-class cricket is something like 21, and he's an incredible bowler. You've got guys like Sylvester Class and uh, sorry, Sylvester Clark and Franklin Stevenson and Colin Croft. Um, Patrick Patterson, who Bar Barat Sundarasan wrote that incredible piece about. I mean, there's just been so many incredible players come through, especially when it comes to bowlers. Yeah, you're so correct. And um, we had a plethora of bowlers. And someone like, a, uh, someone like a Eswick has been someone who has done quite well for himself, more so as a coach in the last three mm. years, the last three decades, correction, in the, in the West Indies. Um, he has been a, a great bowling coach because I think he's modified himself a lot and he's patterned himself um, in that mold. And that's why he's gone on to carry that legacy as a, a good bowling coach and someone who the West Indies could have done with now in this era if he was fully fit. If you were to rank them, who's number one? Who's the best fast bowler the West Indies have ever produced? Oh, boy, this is going to be controversial. Let me tell you, <laughs> for me, this is just my personal opinion. I am a huge... Tino Best. Is it Tino Best? No. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> He's probably my best friend. But I am a huge Sakurli Ambrose fan. Many Ooh. people would say Malcolm Marshall. Many might even say uh, Michael Holding. But for me, Kirtley Ambrose stood the test of time in one internationals and also test cricket. And I think when you look at his career, he was, he was so feared. He was deadly. He was so accurate. 
for me, Ambrose is my man. That's my that's my favorite, but that's just a personal bias, perhaps. But for me, mm. he was perhaps one of my favorite, if not the most uh, referred fast bowler for the West Indies. Yeah, I mean, Ambrose is a very good pick. I mean, Malcolm Marshall, I think, has a claim to be perhaps the best fast bowler of all time. We haven't in this whole this whole hour, we haven't even talked about Wes Hall, who in many ways sort of began. He was the first tall guy, fast, could bowl long spells and, um, you know, you know, incredible bowler, worn for bounces way before it was the fashion. Um, and Andy Roberts is another one who is, he's now the groundsman, isn't he, in Antigua. Uh, but he was uh, an incredible bowler, and perhaps again, just maybe was on the he was he he was sort of fading just as the West Indies were becoming that dynasty. But if you talk to guys like Michael Holding and and um, uh, you know Joel Garner, they talk about Andy Roberts as being just on another level as a bowler. Interesting, you said about Wes Hall because he last yesterday he was on radio and on television saying that the person who had the biggest influence in him becoming a fast bowler was Sir Everton Weeks. Because he said that um, he never got a chance to play a test match with Sir Everton because when uh, he was supposed to play, Sir Everton walked away. So he made his test debut and Sir Everton wasn't in the team. And, but Sir Everton, he said, was a father figure. Sir Everton was the one who encouraged him to keep bowling fast because he, wasn't, he was bowling fast but not getting the success he wanted to. And he was almost thinking of uh, you know, packing it up, packing it in. And Sir Everton encouraged him to keep going. And he spoke quite highly of Sir Everton just a couple of days ago. So it's interesting you mentioned his name. Sir Andy Roberts was extremely fast. He was deadly and he was also mouthy. He was very chatty. I think he was one of the first who they said uh, was, was into the whole uh, having a go at the Heather Batsman, intimidating them. Um, he's a, he was a curator in Antigua. And now he's just perhaps just advising on, on, on uh, how, the, how the pitches are being prepared. Of course, he comes from St. John's in Antigua, and he was just deadly. He was part of that four-pound pace attack that Clive Lloyd marketed and Clive Lloyd used to um, be so medicine against uh, other players around the world. Um, I, there's just so many. And, you know, we haven't – another one that I think a lot of people who listen to this and will remember, and he's gone on to be a great cricket commentator as well, is Ian Bishop. And I don't think people remember – you know, just how great a bowler Ian Bishop was when he was fit, which was sadly very rarely. Ian Bishop, remember the name. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny we remember his name when he's now known for that iconic phrase in the 2016 Cricket World Cup. Injuries paid a lot for Ian Bishop's career coming to an end because uh, he was also someone who they thought would have taken over the mantle of West Indies cricket. A great strike rate. He got a lot of wickets in very few tests. But that back injury that Ian Bishop picked up just ended it. It just finished everything. And uh, he just was so frustrated by that. He, he went on to go into cricket commentary, and he's been brilliant at that. I mean, for the last two decades, he's been the number one cricket commentator. If not, of course, in the Caribbean, yes. But perhaps he's one of the best in the world. Um, so people forget that Ian Bishop was such a great fast bowler because of the, the, the job he's done as a commentator. But he could have been the man to get the most test wickets, um, perhaps overshine someone like a Courtney Walsh who's got the most for the West Indies. He could be the man to do it. He, his, his rate was going great. His um, average was, was excellent as a bowler. He was just a, a giant when he played, and he played with the best of the fast bowlers as well. 
so interesting that you would finally finish up there by mentioning Courtney Walsh. It just shows how many great names there are. I don't think he'd been mentioned anywhere throughout the show so far. But my thanks to Barry Wilkinson and our brilliant guests for the last hour. If you missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify. Thanks for listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.